Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering public understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 30th of July and this is episode number 74. On today's podcast, historian and Great War expert Taff Gillingham gives a lecture on the British Tommy in 1918. This talk was given as part of the WFA's York Conference on the 7th of July 2018. There's been an awful lot of stuff over the centenary about the forgotten this, forgotten that, forgotten Indians, forgotten nurses, forgotten such and such, forgotten everything. But actually, ironically, the people who haven't got much of a mention at all have been the ordinary British soldier and their achievements, and particularly the soldiers of 1918. I mean, it's almost been airbrushed out of the story. Actually, that's not quite fair. The BBC and everybody else managed to airbrush the story of the old contemptibles out of all of their coverage of 2014, so I suppose they'd set the pattern then. And if it hadn't have been for the work of a group of historians, people like Pete, uh, badgering the government, the centenary committee, government centenary committee, wouldn't have commemorated anything in 1918, uh, 2018 at all, apart from the armistice. And, um, and with a lot of badgering and shaming, they eventually persuaded them to, um, to have an event to cover the Battle of Amiens as well. Uh, and it kind of shows how much the government really didn't get what the Battle of Amiens was about, that they're basing the whole thing on a big commemoration in a cathedral in Amiens rather than anywhere on the battlefield. But it's a step in the right direction, although again, um, as always, as with all the rest of the centenary, it's just going to be a big commemoration about dead blokes and missing anything about the actual history, which is a great shame. So, the idea here, what I'm very keen to avoid is 45 minutes worth of statistics and 45 minutes worth of talking about battles that most of you already know about anyway. Um, so, this is much more observations. It's, uh, it's been looking at the, the whole experience of 1918. Obviously, some of it drawn from facts, some from... Um, some from uh, yeah, talking to veterans over the years, and again, as Pete mentioned, the Carpy Chums, we got an awful lot out of veterans by simply showing up and talking to them, wearing the old uniforms they did. I could have the same conversation with the same veteran on one day, just wearing the jeans like I am now, and I'd have a very different conversation with him if a couple of weeks later we were doing something with the Carpy Chums and we met again. It was almost like something, something in the mind, it would, it would unlock a different set of memories. So that's been very helpful, and especially uh, the soldiers of 1918 who were always very reticent and thought that nobody was interested, because even by the late 80s, early 90s, the focus for most people was always about the song, particularly the first day, and about the Battle of Passchendaele. And the veterans of 1918, especially those who hadn't taken part in any of the earlier fighting, um, just really just thought that nobody was interested in them. So uh, it's as very late in the day. It's by certainly no means enough but uh, this is an attempt to, to redress the balance of it. So one of the things that I was given on the, on the brief was to talk about the makeup of the army. And obviously, at the end of the day, during the First World War, the British Army took the whole of male society, pretty much, put it in the same carpet suits, dropped it in the army. It, that meant that the whole of the experience of British society was put in the army. In fact, all the time, every day on Facebook, no matter what the post, there's an endless list of RIP, respect, 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 missing the fact that, you know, amongst all this lot of rapists and murderers and child molesters and thieves and bullies and utter, utter scumbags, along with all the good guys as well. 
because that's what happened. That was what that's what would happen today if you just swept up the whole of society and put them in the same outfit. So, but there there are basically four types of first war British soldier, and this is a generalisation, but it's not far off the mark. And there they all are, all looking very very different, as you can see, because they wear pretty much exactly the same hats. They wear the same jackets. They wear the same trousers. They wear the same puppies, They wear the same boots. So they look the same. But even though these fellows are all in the Suffolk Regiment, because that's our pet thing, which is why I have lots of photographs of them, the chap on the left is a pretty more regular soldier. The picture's taken later, it's taken in probably 1917 or 18, but he's a pre-war regular. And the next chap is a pre-war territorial, he's been in the Suffolk Yeomanry to begin with, in fact he didn't like horses, so he converted to the infantry. The next chap is a member of Kitchener's Army, and the fellow at the end is an early conscript, he's a 1916 conscript who's and so within that experience, you have four very different reasons for joining the army. Pre-war regulars, it was just business, very often uh, they hadn't joined for a career, they joined because they were fed up of working on a farm and pouring rain or freezing cold, um, but they were a very, very different breed. They were professional soldiers, they knew that they were an elite, uh, hence the fact that the old contemporaries uh, carried on right until that, and there was five members of the Old Contemporaries Association left when they finally wound it up. The pre-war territorials, very, very different from the pre-war regulars, um, and the fact that they hadn't been taken seriously by the army. I mean, people like uh, Field Marshal Lord Roberts and Kitchener had absolutely no time for them at all. They thought they were a joke. Um, they hadn't even, the majority hadn't signed up to fight overseas in the event of a major European war. Um, because he had to sign the Imperial Service Code, and as late as 1913, certainly as far as the Suffolk Regiment was concerned, two <coughs> officers and three men the 5th Suffolk's, and one officer on his own had signed up with the 4th Suffolk's, and that was it. They were the only ones who were prepared to waive their rights to, uh, and, and to go off and fight a European war. So it's not surprising that the people around the army didn't have much confidence in them and decided that it would be better to build a new army rather than rely on the territorials. Uh, then, obviously, the new army, the Kitchener Volunteer, uh, which makes up the bulk uh, of, of, the, uh, of the British Army in, in the first years of the war. Um, and again, a very, very different breed of people. You know, it's now accident that the vast majority of them have books, um, the, 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 most of the poetry, the, the finest literature, all of that comes from the new army then. Um, I mean, remember Pete, Pete Simpkins' book on Kitchener's Army, I remember talking to him when he was about it, and he was saying, that when you actually got into it, when you started digging into the primary resources, the, the primary sources, there was very little of that in the country. These are mostly people who got fed up with the day job and wanted to go on an adventure. Um, you know, people working in a, in a factory who were hard up couldn't necessarily afford to do that. So what you've got, you've got a lot of very bright people, you've got a lot of white collar workers, people who, uh, who were capable of expressing themselves. Uh, and it's very interesting that then, by the time we get to the last group, the conscripts, there's very little written by conscripts. There are not many accounts that they've left behind them, despite the fact that they are the bulk, I suppose, really, of the, uh, and certainly they carry much of the main weight of the war because the conscription starts at the beginning of 1916. Um, and, um, and obviously there are people amongst those who joined from 1916 onwards who would have willingly joined the army, but there was an awful lot of them that didn't want to go. Uh, certainly as the grinding machine goes on, you know, you, you know that uh, you're seeing the casualty figures and you know that if you can't escape this, you stand a pretty good chance that you might get badly injured or possibly killed. And that's also reflected in how, after the war, um, 
the, the, the pride that certain groups of old in town, I mentioned the old contemporary association, who right from the very end kept the flag flying for those fellows who who'd been in action to, or been within the range of the German guns um, from the 5th, the 20th, 5th of August to the 22nd of November. And this is by no means scientific, but after we tried to go to Red Metal Museum, this was something that sparked um, in the South Red Metal Museum a few years ago, I got to read the Bible letters. I had to read them for medal cases. And what struck me was that the vast majority of First World War medal groups were trios. And then you put either 1914 style or 1415 style and clearly, they were very proud about their service and they made sure that when they died, their medals had gone into the Regimental Museum. Whereas the majority of those only had the War and Victory Medal, only Mutt and Jack. But despite the fact that there are far more of these than were issued as pairs, there are a lot less of those in Regimental Museums, which suggests that the people that they were awarded to, as a general rule, were either happy or forget about it, or at least on that point. And I think the way that some of these conscripts saw the earlier generations as well, I can remember the, uh, in, back in 2001 we made a series for the BBC called The Trench where we, we took 25 fellows from Hull and they moved apart from under the trench system in France. And at the launch of it at the Imperial War Museum that we first screened, there, there was six or seven first war veterans there and uh, amongst them were um, uh, well, Doug Roberts, who, who was a Queen's of Surrey's in 1918, he was a conscript, and Swallow Lodge, who was a basic journey, and had uh, got a 15 star. And I remember Tim Bond uh, had been sort of chatting with him, and I'm trying to get to Swallow Lodge, and Swallow was sweet. <laughs> and Doug Roberts seemed to have said, I'm not going to sit down. They literally much more than us. And even then, even 90 odd years later, as far as Doug Roberts was concerned, a man in the 1915 star had done more than him, despite the fact that he stopped his way through the party in 1918. So, even amongst the veterans, in that perspective. Beginning of 1918, of course, one of the big things is about manpower. I'm not going to go into an endless list of facts and figures about it, not least because Alison Hines has already done a lot of great work about it. But suffice to say that after that slogging matches all the way through 1917, of Arras, Cambrai, and 30, the army is really struggling for manpower. And they, can't, they just can't recruit enough. There's just not enough manpower out of the conscripts to keep coming through. It takes at least five or six months to train recruits. And by this time, nobody's just being puffed up the street and sent across with no training because it's pointless and a waste of kit. So there has to be that lead time. So to get people to France, you need to make sure there's at least that five or six months lead time. They've reduced the age for going overseas to fight in France from 19 to 18. But even then, in practice, they still keep people back until they're 18 and a half. Uh, it's an interesting thing that the army do exactly the same on D-Day. Uh, the reinforcement companies are nearly all made up of 18 year olds, 18 and a half year olds. Uh, they are kind of spared the, the, the worst of the first assaults for whatever yeah, reason. Um, but the, in practice, there's a shortfall of several hundred thousand men. And obviously GHQ in France, the same thing in the manpower, we're not going to be able to you know, launch any offensives, let alone that. I mean, they know that the German attacks are coming. In the new, their newspaper accounts say, you know, the Germans are coming. Uh, so there's no surprise that the Germans are building up. But of course, it's not just the army in France that need men. The Royal Navy needs men. The munition industry needs men. So even though you can comb all these organisations out by like the people who 
who can be spared, who are the people who, who aren't doing these important jobs or are not paying for these important jobs at home, but there is still a need to send them to other places as well, because there's no point having some by themselves and nobody making ammunition or providing food or whatever to keep them there. So there's all of these competing demands for manpower. So in the end, one of the ways to provide more work, to keep up the fighting spirit, is to have a cull of infantry battalions. So in every infantry brigade, which up until the beginning of 1918, there'd be four battalions in the brigade, the decision is made to cut one battalion and reduce it down to three. Um, and it's a, it's a tough call. There's a lot of very good fighting battalions who are the junior of all of these fighting units. Um, there's a conscious decision to keep all of the first line territorial units. So in, in the case of the Suffolk Regiment, the fourth Suffolk, first fourth Suffolk, have had a useless war. They, they bless them. I mean, I love them because they're East Suffolk territorials, but they were hopeless. Most of them ran away and hid during the Battle of New Chappelle, yeah, and then kept out of action for a year. They don't do badly at Highwood, but then again, by the time they get into action at 30, they do appallingly badly. There's very poor morale, they're very badly led, and they have a pretty rubbish war. And in the end, they end up having to be sent to Germany, which I suspect was an element of punishment. But the 4th Suffolk's are kept, whereas the 8th Service Battalion, who've done very good work in the 18th Division, they have to go, which caused quite a bit of bitterness amongst members of the 8th, who were very proud of their service. But what that did mean was that the experienced fighting soldiers, many with a lot of experience and a lot of fighting knowledge and a lot of knowledge on the ground, they were then spread out amongst other units. So in the case of the 8th Suffolk's, they get sent pretty much right over half of them go to the seventh. And the whole of battalion headquarters pretty much takes over. Seventh Suffolk, uh, Colonel the, the GW Hill, who's actually a Royal Irish Regiment officer, uh, he's a dear town of two bars, he finds himself in command of Seventh Suffolk in the eight, and he takes himself with him. So in the middle there is Major Bullard of the second in command. And if you look, nearly all of those sergeants are BCM winners, military medal winners, and all of them are uh, an armful of overseas service stripes and wound stripes and goodness knows what else. This is lots and lots of fighting experience. So instead of having drafts entirely made up of beginners who don't know anything, it's got to be brought up to strength, there will be some of those of necessity because of natural wastage, but at least on a daily basis there are good, solid fighting men to, 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 to form that solid basis. So you often see criticism of the decision to cut the battalion per brigade. In reality, there was no choice, there was also the manpower to do any different. And in practice, it probably meant that a lot of those battalions were, were actually better off, even though it got inevitably meant that they would, that the brigades were, were, were back by 25%, so they would be managing less time. Morale. Again, you often hear people say, oh, well, by 1918, they're all fed up. I mean, that wasn't my experience, talking to the old boys. In 1970, <coughs> certainly, that endless grinding after the Battle of Harass, which starts so well, and they say, well, we're moving, we're having ways of breaking through the German lines, then, uh, then it all grinds into the mud at, at, at 30, and then the final, you know, page of the doing really, really well at Cambrai, only now 50 back at the start line. By the end of 1917, people get in the same reaction, we've really had nothing to this. But by 1918, even though they know the Americans, the Germans are coming in large numbers, 
it there's a, no one's under any illusion that there's going to be a massive German assault. They know that the Russians objected in, so there's a massive amount of German soldiers heading their way. They also know that the Americans are coming in large numbers that they can see them. And after that initial breakthrough, when the Germans come smashing through, the one thing that came up time and time again in conversations with the officers was we were out in the open. You could see the bastards. You could shoot them. <laughs> Technology failure. Whether that's uh, is that battery or otherwise. Actually, you can, can you hear me anyway? You can hear. You can't hear. It'll be battery. You can sing amongst yourselves for a moment. Uh, but what's very interesting down here is a German Mauser rifle. 
There's not an ordinary G98 Mauser rifle. It's an AZ. It's a cavalry carbine. Now, obviously there were cavalry in trouble through this trench, but the other people who used them were German stormtroopers. So, and if you look closely, you can see here, there's a round jamming in the breach and another one which in behind it. So in the middle of combat, the rifle's jamming each other away. So this is, without any doubt, the opening day of the March offensive. This is the 21st of March. And in the background, what Richard says, oh, is a smoke, is a smoke, is a smoke. This is that, this is the 21st of March, first thing in the morning. And he's a German soldier who just captured his trench and knows that he's just taken part in, in German terms, one of the most extraordinary feats of arms. Uh, and was captured at the moment. And the original photograph underneath in Germany said uh, the British trenches after the storm has passed. And quite an extraordinary picture. On the April, up on the least, the, the Germans come again to the Georgette Offensive. This is a fellow called Frank Hayden Hornsey. If you ever get a chance, uh, find a copy of his book, Hell on Earth. Uh, Hayden Hornsey, just an ordinary private soldier, writes the most extraordinary account of the fighting in, in, in the April and pretty much how the battalion disintegrates uh, after, you know, after it gets pushed back and it gets split up. Um, and uh, he finds himself firing on the troops that he thinks are German and he's got tons of them over before somebody points out they're actually Portuguese in their blue grey uniforms that are running on the next to uh, which doesn't really bother him at all. Um, and, but when you contrast his story of what he actually saw with his own eyes with the battalion war diary, which was an important retreat and, uh, and falling back, um, you see this much more authentic view of just how the battalion falls apart, but then gets rebuilt again, put back together in the, in the weeks once the, the German, once well, the high tide has been reached. Once the German offensive stop, or they, they, I mean, they keep, they do carry on in little drifts and drafts in other places, but it does give the army time to stop, take a breath, reorganise itself learn from the experience of the German army, the things that have been going on, and start training again. And, and training, training, training. By 1918, you know, there, there is an awful lot of time and effort to work all the way through. It's been a continual process. But in 1918, by 1918, um, Pete Simpkin's great hero, um, Maxi, Ivan Maxi, takes over as director of training, having done a marvellous job commanding the 18th Division and 8th Corps. And fresh thinking at every level. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. We are thinking about, oh, yes, well, there's SS-143 and the training of platoons for offensive action, which was groundbreaking, all this stuff, all through 1917. But it's the detail stuff. It's the simple things. Digging. Here's a load of fellas. This is uh, Fort Suffolk in 1915. Every man with a shovel off digging somewhere. And here we are, the chaps at Second Suffolk. This is digging the trenches in Oxford Road up near Eath. Again, later in 1915 or early 16. Everybody with a shovel, because we've got lots and lots of manpower, so we give every man a shovel, he just digs, and we go all over the country quickly. But by 1918, under Max's direction, they're looking at simple things like digging trenches. And they realise that if everybody starts digging, you will just wear out very quickly. They get snow and snow and snow. But if you break them all up into teams of six, two blokes with picks, two blokes with shovels, two blokes resting. And do that in ten minutes first. Two picks, two shovels, two picks, two picks, two shovels, two picks, two picks, two shovels, two picks. Just go on day, constantly. And you'll get a lot more done, you'll go a lot further, you'll go a lot deeper than you would do if you just bash away at it. Trench digging at night. Simple, simple things. If you're going to carry a pick and shovel, go one more way up, one the other. The heads don't match together. I mean, as with so much of army orders, all most of it is, is formalised common sense. 
but somebody somewhere has to come up with that telephone. We don't know why the people just get up with the shovel and go clanking off into the night. There was a, a lovely little manual I've got, 1918 manual, on fieldworks. And it has a chapter on the army pickaxe. And if I could have found the manual, I would have written it because it would have been a fun thing to do. But you go, okay, well, what's this? Oh, it's a pickaxe. Well, what's a pickaxe for? Duh, it's a big old one. And this goes on for pages about it. Yeah, you can use it, but you can also use it in bridge building because the angle will give you the angles to put this out and that out. And if you land it on the side, it'll be this and that. And then at the end, there's two pages on how you can use it for booby traps. And you can set explosives in it. And you pull the tripwire and the blade drops down and sets the detonator off. And all of this, at every single level, there are people thinking, right, okay, what can we do with the resources we've got? How can we make this better? Way, way beyond the simple fact of getting boats out of their trenches or across bits of no man's land and killing Germans and moving on. At every single level, there are people thinking about what's going on. Recycling, or as the army would have called it, salvage. And this, again, fantastic story about the not wasting things. Because you think, well, you know, there's plenty of money, we just keep buying new stuff. But things like the um, Things like the army messing, the type messing. Skin, you know, very lightweight, uh, it's easy to get squashed or get run over or it gets full of bullet holes. And this manager says, yeah, don't waste it. Just because it's full of bullet holes and somebody's run over it, it's still cheaper to get a bloke at a Frenchman in a workshop in France to patch it up and straighten it than it is to buy a new one. For two shillings, we can, we can have it repaired. It would cost six shillings for a new one, so repair it. And the extraordinary figures. Um, I mean, there were two big depots for recycling, one at Arnhem, one at Calais. Um, so things like uh, water bottles, cleaning the water bottle, 23,415 at Arnhem, 40,000 at Calais. Um, cotton recovered from bandoliers, so the cotton bandoliers, disposable bandoliers with 50 rounds of 303, and after the battle, where they're recovered. Um, and this is just recovering the cotton, the fabric, and shredding it and reusing it. 15,376 from Harvard, 14,560 at Calais. Boots, unsacked and then re-sacked again and then back into their pairs, 316,237 pairs. Horseshoes, loose horseshoes, 8,400. Part worn horseshoes, 8,000. Um, small arms ammunition, 303, fit and ready for use, just to read the illustrations come out of the packets. Uh, 493 at half, 1,147,000 at Calais, but then doubtful as to whether it's useful, therefore it all needs checking and checking out. 5,836,500 uh, going through half, 8,185,000 going through Calais, um, and it's endless. Steel helmets, 47,707, all clean, repaired, new liners, new chin straps. That only done at Calais, only place they did it. And those figures, and there's loads more, there's tons and tons of other stuff. All of that just in September alone, 1917. Just in one month. That is the effort. That is the extraordinary effort that's going in. Everything reused. Uniforms, if they're not too badly damaged, if they're not full of bullet holes, then clean, reworn, you can put a label in it. Salvage, reworn, reused. Um, the British had a habit of not, if something had been killed in bloodstains and big holes in it, then it'd be shredded. Unlike the Germans, who didn't have the, the, the luxury of, of endless materials that we did, and so the Germans would, would just patch them. But extraordinary work. 
And of course, all of that, a lot of that means that, that those things can be recycled in France, which cuts down on the shipping, that you have to transport it across the channel, or clean it up, reuse it in France. Under the loose heading of logistics, which again, I'm not going to go into, because it's a talk all of its own, and Rob Thompson does it much better than I do, but it's just scale. Every time it's scale, I mean, all that lot. And thousands and thousands of troops every day needing food, needing water, needing, you know, everything, needing ammunition. And not just the need for it, but it's got to be transported, it's got to be stored, it's got to be provided when they need it. And to get it from the base depots, it's got to be carted in trains and then lorries and then taken up to the front line. And all of that amazing work done by people like Geddes revolutionising the railway network in France to make sure that you had lines which were just for up trains for taking, um, taking supplies and, and reinforcements in one direction, separate lines coming back with the wounded and the empty crates and things for the ammunition. The roads the same, so that all of it, the whole of that part of northern France and Flanders was turned into one big piece of machinery. Absolutely extraordinary. And it's so easy to forget that this was the largest single organisation in British history. There's nothing before or since it comes close to this. The equivalent of taking the population of somewhere like Nottingham three times over and shipping them abroad for the best part of four years and feeding them, watering them, arming them, looking after their every need. And it's so, so easy to be dismissive of it and just look at just the tiny, narrow bits. Admin. Who on earth would come to a Western Front Association conference and talk about admin? How tedious is that? But this is quite extraordinary. I mean, this is, this is 1915. So even in 1915, I mean, this um, is a list of every army booklet, army form that was in New Zealand in 1915, which multiplies, you know, tenfold by 1918. And, and it's every single thing that you can think um, that the army would possibly need. I mean, the, the, some of the, I mean, the familiar ones, things like the Army B10482, which was the notification of death, which many of you will have seen, you know, the Army Council regrets to inform you, blah, 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 blah. Um, there's a similar one, 10483, was uh, notification of your relatives missing in a prisoner. Um, 10484, no further information. Um, and 10485, which I've never seen before, notification that soldier is presumably quite well. Presumably, quite a lot of that, you know. <laughs> Presumably, he's a pilot who's been dropped into a, you know, into a new colony or something like that, having a good time for the rest of the war. And cooks, clerks, bottle washers, people doing jobs behind the scenes, without which the machine at the front end just doesn't run at all. And that important communication between the soldiers' lives and the families at home, that notification, which inevitably is very terse, it's very short, but at least gives some kind of contact to show that somebody's made a note somewhere that your son is missing or killed or, you know, or presumably quite well. Extraordinary. The 100 days or the 96 days, as historians call it. Trenchless warfare. Again, an image of the First World War that is completely beyond anybody who's in the media. The idea that, I mean, if people that come to us and say, oh, we work with four or five people, oh, we're making a television programme uh, or a film about the last day of the war, you know, that no one's thought of it before. And what we want, we want two trench lines, we want barbed wire down the middle. We do know that there haven't been any trenches since August, really. No. Well, what were they doing? Well, extraordinary. 
and it was a totally different war. The reason there are so many casualties in 1918 is because most of it's fought in the open. The whole reason for building trenches was because it's too dangerous to be out in the open, so you get below the surface. But once the war movement starts, then you're out in the open. It becomes dangerous, people get hit, but until it starts moving, until you're out in the open, you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to win a war sitting in a hole in the ground with people shooting at you. And you have to rethink and remember things that you've forgotten about. In 1914, Royal Field Artillery, Royal Horse Artillery are firing over open sites at the Germans. And people go, oh, how ludicrous, you know, no protection, you know, they're easy, going to be seen and all that. But that's exactly what they have to start doing again in 1918. Riding up as close as they can, unlimbering, firing out at the Germans, chasing away, keep chasing, keep chasing. Got in a real battle with a BBC documentary maker a while ago who wanted to make a program about how the cavalry moves absolutely before the war, which is utter nonsense. Suddenly again in 1918 they come to the land. You know, the German, the British infantry can only chase the Germans as fast as the Germans can run away. The cavalry can get ahead of them, they can cut them off, they can cut off their supply lines, they can make a nuisance of themselves. You know, cavalry don't become obsolete until the end of the 20s, really, when the internal combustion engine and armed vehicles combined can cross the same ground that a horse can travel at, at the same speed. And after that, then they become obsolete. But it's a very, very different type of war. The Suffolk branch of the Western Front Association, in conjunction with the Friends of the Suffolk Regiment, have been doing a series of tours throughout the centenary, following the story of the Suffolk Regiment in 1918. And the 1918 trip, one thing that we were very keen to do is to make sure that we went to all of the places where the surviving battalions, the ones that hadn't been culled, ended their war. Either the places where they were in the fighting unit, the last day of fighting, because I think the 11th Battalion, and the Suffolk's were the last in combat, which was in October, where they were fighting at all for the Suffolk's in November, and the places where they were actually at the time of the armistice. And these are all places you've never heard of. These are places you would never go. These are places that battlefield tours have never ever been to. And the other Suffolk's are the relative who, 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 who won the military medal, actually, he, he, was, he won the military medal with the 11th Suffolk's at, at crossing the Canyon River here at Bermarine. And I used own food, which is just because you look at the you look at the scenery, and it's exactly how it would have been the day they crossed the river. It wouldn't be any different. It wouldn't have been full of shell holes, there wouldn't have been any destroyed property. This is fast moving. Firefights. In fact, there's a story here of, uh, of one of the last fellows who left Suffolk uh, in Portland when it was sad, and I think he just crosses the river with Lewis on team. And um, and he, he cuts out lots of Germans and Lewis done eventually they overpower him. And when the 11th Suffolk finally crossed the river, the Germans are buried in the built peg, ran it with a sign on it, saying a very brave Englishman. But this is the reality. This is, towards the end of the 100 days, just ordinary fields, ordinary farms, streets, and places you've never heard of. As I say, this is, this is Bermarine, where the 11th Suffolk's finished. But all of those places where the 12th ended their war, where the, I mean, the 2nd Suffolk's ended their war, um, three or four miles short of three or four miles short of, um, of Mons, uh, so they are literally, um, that they end up four miles back from the day they finished the war, they're four miles away from where they started it. Clobber. Again, uh, several years ago, I can't 
And we also had one of the professors of military history said, oh, I've got to really start with the war in a ludicrous sorting outfit and, and uniform involved as the war progressed. Actually, he didn't. I mean, this is a soldier of 1914. This is a soldier of guards uh, uh, heading off to war with a set of 1914 pattern leather equipment. And apart from tweaks and improvements and gadgets and gizmos, the basic stuff that the soldier stands up in doesn't really alter at all. By the end of the helmet, he'll have a gas on. But apart from that, the same caps. Slightly modified versions, but he still has a big cap. He still has a service dress jacket and trousers. He still has puffy, still has the same boots and the same basic equipment. Albeit some of it may be leather, which keep up the demand. But the fact is that when the war broke out, the British Army had state-of-the-art kit. It had all been introduced within the previous 10 years or less. Whereas the French Army, you know, still, uh, still somewhere in the 1870s, the uh, German Army, they're probably 10 or 15 years beyond the times. Everybody else has got stuff which is pretty antiquated, straggling back to the Crimea period. But the British start the war with very good, very sound, very practical kit, um, which was the ideal stuff for fighting wars in. Um, and the fact that in 1914 the British Army was tiny by European standards, um, it would have been interesting had the British Army been equipped to this level and that level of training <coughs> in the millions that uh, other European armies had. Firepower. I mean, it's interesting, there's a, a little book here, the Non-Commissioned Officer's Guide to Promotion. Uh, this belongs to a fellow of the, uh, the, the first Berman Battalion of the Warwicks. And what's interesting is that it, in the front, in the introduction to it, um, it's, uh, it's a, so in reference to paragraph 108, section 15, part 2, Queen's regulation. So, I mean, in its essence, it's a Victorian publication. But what it talks about when it comes to, uh, to firepower is in order to gain superiority of fire, the firing line must have an ample supply of ammunition. When the supply is limited, the question of how many broken fire is affected by this consideration. It may occasionally be possible and desirable because having commanders to issue orders on this point, but more usually it must be decided by company commanders according to the circumstances. Um, between 1400 and 600 yards, carefully controlled collective fire usually produces better results than the uncontrolled fire of individual men, which ceases to be sufficiently effective for ranges of about 600 yards. The point it makes all the way through this is it's all about firepower. When you're advancing towards the enemy, then lots and lots of firepower will make you keep the headstands, then you can get close enough to go and sit bayonets in them. But all the way through it's firepower, firepower, firepower. Control of firepower. The NCOs and officers controlling groups of men, putting down lots of fire as others advance around them. <coughs> through the fighting on the Somme, they learned that actually just infantrymen alone, you need more than just riflemen. To break the deadlock of trench warfare, you need specialists, you need bombers, you need rifle bombers, you, know, you need Lewis gunners. And those basic elements of the infantry platoon, those four sections the rifle and rifle bombers, um, the, the, the bombers and the Lewis gunners, would train to take on virtually every type of obstruction, whether it's trench to trench, whether it's attacking trenches end on, whether it's attacking pillboxes, or whatever. What you see in 1918. Once you break through that whole business of having to bomb Germans out of dugouts and pillboxes, when it's out in the open, it comes back to firepower. And there are less and less bombers, there are less and less bombs, and more and more Lewis guns. It's about Lewis guns, it's about ammunition, and an endless supply 
of 303 mission. There's a great account by one of the fellows of Fort Suffolk in his diary, uh, and it's just no food today. Still didn't get any food today. No food today. Haven't had any food for four days. We've had some German bread today between 20 of us. No food today. No food today. And the quartermaster's got a straightforward decision. If he's only got a limited amount of logistical support to get stuff in the front, oh, what do I send? Do I send them food or do I send them ammunition? The Germans are on the run. It's a no brainer. They'll forage the food somewhere. I'll send the ammunition. And so pictures like this, where two or three years earlier you just have a row of the rifles hanging over a barricade on a bridge, every boat's got a list down. Firepower, firepower, firepower. As much as you can. Just keep blasting endless firepower towards the Germans. Of course, there were other people too who took part. So like endlessly get told the Americans won the war for us. But there's this wonderful thing which I've shamelessly still from one of Pete Cynthia's presentations that I did for a long time ago, which shows the, the dispositions along the western front on the 25th of September 1918. At the time they broke the Hindenburg line. This, this was on Hayes' office wall that was updated daily. It's up in the north there, you see the Belgian army. Germans clearly not too bothered about the Belgians. There's one German division opposite every two Belgians. Um, opposite most of the French army, the Germans aren't that bothered down here. By the time you get to, well, the these are the Americans, you can see here the Americans and Germans are what, you know, there's probably one German division for every three American divisions, and then it's roughly one to one all the way down here from the Swiss border. Uh, around about where the Mangan's French Fifth Army is, Mangan's a nutcase, so the Germans are, are, are clustering quite a few men behind that. But on the 25th of September 1918, the German army know who are about to beat them. It's not the Belgians, it's not the French, it's certainly not the Americans, clustered opposite the British. Here on this front, on Rawlinson's 4th Army, Bloomer's 2nd Army, Horn there. Look at those numbers. This is the German army, mass, 2, 3 to 1 against every British division. And you don't need to take my word for it, you can take the word of Hindenburg and Ludendorff. They know who's about to beat them. So victory when it comes, as it is, you can't get away from the fact that Germans effectively lose their army, they lose their air force, they lose their navy, their country is occupied. Uh, <coughs> and here's uh, this is third division marching into Germany, and second Suffolk there with their colours reunited with their colours at Gimnick on the Rhine land. And on the right there, that's uh, Joe Bailey, the famous footballer, who was also the most decorated in play for Reading Cannon. He was the most decorated Suffolk Regiment officer of the war. DSO, two bars, MC, bars, you name it, Joe had got it. And then, of course, DMOB, which was a very hit and miss affair. Um, Heather and Marybeth, they tried to let go first. Tradesmen who got specific skills that, that the post war world would need, which of course meant an awful lot of people. Um, were very frustrated because it took a long time to go home. I mean, Sudbury and Suffolk here, this is Sudbury's welcome home, which you see, even though the, the Treaty of Versailles has been signed in June 1919, it takes until September for the last of the Sudbury men to get home, by which time they would be really to start and they would take part in the war, it's all old news. Um, and of course, you know, there'd been fellows fighting in Russia, people that drew the real short straws and been sent over there uh, to get involved in something that you know, most people really didn't understand or care about. Um, 
And when you were demobbed, there was no suit for you like the, like the British gave you at the end of the Second World War. You literally went home in a suit of service dress uh, with your overcoat. And very quickly, the government sent out a message saying, if you take your great coat to a railway station or a police station, we'll give you two pounds for it, which is presumably gathering them up to send them to, to, to Russia. And so not surprisingly, first of all, overcoats are very rare because they work hard on two streets, so not overcoat. Um, and, uh, and everybody then starts returning to returning to civilian life. <coughs> On comrades, obviously a very big thing from the 20s and 30s, and uh, well, right up to the 60s, really. These are the veterans of the Fifth Army, marching there, heading up to the cenotaph for their, or probably horse guards, actually, for their annual service. Um, a lot of Fifth Army veterans were the old comrades at that time. And, of course, they still had their OCA, uh, got in the centre there, and you've been their commander. Uh, and on Goff's right is uh, his Maxie. Yeah, with his very natty pair of spats on and his bowler hat. Um, and marching with the men, which now the only thing you ever see, you know, when old comrades associations do their parade, normally whoever's the president of the old comrades stands on the dais and they all march past him. Whereas here, the commander of Fourth Army and, uh, uh, and others are, are actually marching with them. And I'm using Fifth Army as an example just as a good example because Fifth Army are very proud of what they've done. In fact, uh, overrated it slightly. The men who saved Britain and the Empire by their magnificent fighting and retreat. Men of Fifth Army were called upon to defend a 40 mile front with inadequate numbers against the main attack of the enemy. They fought day and night from March 21st to 28th and held the line unbroken until the enemy left it was exhausted. The front still stood, Amiens was saved, so was Paris, so was Channelport, so was France, so was England. Yeah, probably ever so slightly overrated. But the point is that they were very proud of it. And very proud of what they achieved in 1918. And the point is that the British public knew what had happened in 1918. You know, it was a bigger deal. The whole March offensive and the stop of the Germans was any bit of a bigger deal as the Battle of Britain was 25 years later. I mean, I didn't even know that there was a memorial to Fifth Army. Anybody ever been to the memorial for Fifth Army? No, I didn't know that until a couple of days ago. I had no idea. But actually, that's St Mary's Hospital in London, outside the door is the the fading old red fox of, of Fifth Army is still there. At the time, the, the idea was that they didn't want a dusty memorial in France. What they wanted was a, memorial, a living memorial, so they endowed two awards in the hospital and had a, a, a plaque put outside. But as they faded away, their stories faded away with them. And because, almost certainly, the media latched on to the big disasters, the big failures, the you know, the opening day of the song, the, the mud of Passchendaele, they literally sought the real history. And it's a kind of collective national amnesia. It's, it's a forgetting. It must be. Well, it must be me. I can't believe you, can it? Okay. And it's, it's a shame because the story of 1918, the story of these achievements, has literally been forgotten. There's a massive opportunity this year to tell those stories. I mean, there, apparently there is, later on in the year, there, there's been an international co collaboration between the, the British, the, the Australians, Canadians, and New Zealanders, and others to tell the story of the 100 days. Um, but whether they have or not, how they've told it, of course, is another matter entirely. Um, one of the final big efforts of the year, Peter Jackson's been involved in a, in a big uh, animated uh, first of all thing where he's very proud he said he had nothing to do with the historians it's just the words of men themselves so inevitably that'll be the words of men chosen for their emotive you know, misery 
stuff rather than anything remotely approaching context and perspective, which is a shame. And uh, really, just to finish, the, uh, there's a great account in Malcolm Brown's book of, of 1918. He quotes an old officer of the, um, of the Royal Garrison Artillery who, reviewing, yeah, bearing in mind that he was interviewed in the 70s or early 80s, and, and saying you know, that there's very much a feeling nowadays amongst people who weren't there to say it was a big waste of time and would it not be best all forgotten about and, and all that kind of stuff. And he says, to that people like that, I say to you, you do not know your history, which I kind of think is a great way to end. That nowadays so many people don't know their history. And the fellas who fought in 1918 and all of those people behind them who kept them there and supported them and helped them to that victory in, in a century on, you know, throughout the centenary, it would have been great to think that somebody would have told their story for them instead of just in tiny little room silo. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Buthworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...